fine fellows. It's me, myself, and Millie. And today we have our resident medical advisor on the show, Dr. Amy, the Egg Whisperer. Welcome back. Millie, I love being here. And I call myself me, myself, and I, the three doctors that all work with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it okay that you're the official medical consult for the show? Can I, I love you. Yes, please. Okay. Yes. I'm giving you that title. Happily. I'll take it. (laughs) So today's topic is tough and heavy, um, but instead of sharing an individual story about miscarriage or recurrent pregnancy loss, I thought it would be most helpful for the listeners to just do a Q&A with an expert. So I took to Instagram to get some people's questions, and we're just going to dive into them. I'm ready for it. Okay. So these first set of questions are just kind of your general recurrent pregnancy loss questions. Why does a patient have to have three miscarriages before the cause of RPL is investigated? The answer is you don't. You don't. And I feel like people are made to feel that way. And it could be just from well-intentioned OBGYNs. But the reality is, For me, one miscarriage is just one too many. And if there's anything I can do to prevent that with the next pregnancy, I want to do it after the first one. And I'm not the only one that takes miscarriage that seriously. There are so many other doctors just like me where they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's look into, and I know we're going to probably get into this. I have a feeling maybe you're going to ask me what are the causes, but there's so many other doctors that are like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do an evaluation after your first. Because I think of myself not just as a fertility doctor for today. I'm your fertility doctor in five years from now, in 10 years from now. I'm your fertility doctor when you want that second kid. And so I want to learn as much as possible. And these pregnancies, even when they miscarry, are so valuable to me. They just teach me so much about a patient and what I can do next time. Mm. So why can't the RPL screening be given as preconception care to all people with periods. Is that something you suggest? I mean, the likelihood of these things coming up as positive are so low. I mean, you know I have the Tushy Method. And for those of you who don't know what that is, you just go to tushymethod.com. Those are just the five tests that you should do to look at your fertility. And sometimes one of those things can be the reason why you had a miscarriage, like a low AMH, for example. But in general, you know, doing, let's say, an autoimmune panel doesn't make sense for everyone because the likelihood of something coming up positive is like 2%, right? Mm. However, there are some people, you know, I talk to them and I, and one of the things I ask people, did your mom have miscarriages? And they say, oh yeah, my mom had five. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Let's do an RPL panel on you. Maybe you have a chromosomal abnormality. Maybe you have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So maybe there's something there for us to learn from so that you don't have to suffer the way your mother suffered. Mm. So yeah, I I do think there are some patients where it makes sense if you already have an autoimmune condition. Um, But otherwise, for the general public, if you're just trying to conceive, you're ready to have that baby, I don't think you need an RPL workup to start. Mm -hmm. Now, What would be some simple blood work that might be able to give some people answers? Yeah. So first thing is an AMH level. I think a lot of what happens can be related to the quality of our eggs. And we get older, it's harder to have a healthy baby just because of that. It has nothing to do with anything that's in your control. So doing an AMH level, an FSH, estradiol, 
as well, looking at your thyroid, for example, doing a TSH level, a prolactin to make sure it's not elevated. So those are some simple tests. Then you can get into like genetic screening, for example, looking at a chromosome analysis. And you can even look at the genetics of sperm and do a sperm DNA fragmentation test. So those are just general blood tests. If we want to talk more testing, do you want me to go there? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Ultrasound to look for endometriosis, adenomyosis, looking for scarring inside the uterus, and that's called Asherman syndrome. Looking for a uterine septum, for example, which is a wall that you're born with that can sometimes interfere with a healthy pregnancy growing to term. Um, the other thing that we look at is endometritis. So that's a biopsy on the lining of the uterus that we do to look if there is an elevation of something called plasma cells. And there are also other fancy tests like Juno. Juno.bio. It's a really cool test. I have no relationship to the company. Um, it's just a vaginal swab and maybe it's a reflection of what's going on above. And it's an easier thing to do than going in right now with what's going on with COVID to get a biopsy done of the lining of the uterus. And that test is called Emma and Alice. So there are infections. That's what I'm referring to in the uterus that could potentially cause miscarriages. And um, so, and the other things are just lifestyle stuff like smoking, drinking too much, drug mm -hmm. use, like THC. I mean, in California, it's basically like a vitamin um, <laughs> in other places. I mean, but we know that there are really good studies that show that it can it can definitely uh, increase one's risk of miscarriage if your partner smokes weed, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, in your expert opinion, what are the top three things to do to recover from a miscarriage? Um, this person that asked that question experienced um, a second FET that ended in a miscarriage. They did an ERA cycle before, changed their protocol, now on to see an immunologist for more tests. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Lock up your alcohol cabinet. <laughs> throw out all the ice cream. <laughs> I'm serious because I think when, when people have miscarriages, they're, they have disordered eating, they drink mm. too much, and it's so hard to recover from that. So I think the first thing you should do is treat yourself as if you are nurturing a future pregnancy. Don't treat yourself. Mm. That's the first thing that people say to me is like, oh, I'm just going to open up a bottle of wine. I'm just going to drink. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. Like you're going to feel so bloated for so much longer because of that. So, you know, and then I feel like so many people, they wait and they take care of their bodies once they're pregnant. Like, oh, once I'm pregnant, I'm going to eat so healthy and so well. And I'm like, once you have a miscarriage, that's the best time to really nourish yourself with really good food, be really healthy, go outside, walk in nature and talk to a therapist. And if you don't have one, find one <laughs> when you have a miscarriage. And I do that. You know, when my patients have a miscarriage, I always offer them um, psycho psychological services. And there's so many different ways of doing that. And for me, it's referring them to a therapist. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to not just like throw it all away after mm -hmm. a miscarriage and just want to like <clears throat> throw caution to the wind, you know, and it, it, it makes perfect sense that that is absolutely not what you want to do. That's right. I mean, maybe in the moment, like maybe one shot of tequila, but I don't want you to go overboard. Yeah. It's just don't treat yourself like crap. Like mm -hmm. you didn't deserve this. You didn't cause this, you know, get in to see your doctor, make a plan, go through all the tests, ask them what they've ruled out, ask them what the plan is. And then remember, your doctor is not your doctor just for today. It's your doctor for your next pregnancy too. They might not see themselves that way, but we want to treat them like that. So make sure you've preserved enough embryos for yourself for your next pregnancy when you've gone through a miscarriage, if, if it was after an IVF cycle. Mm. What would you recommend asking 
an RPL specialist? What tests should somebody ask for in that situation? Yeah, I mean, an RPL specialist will do a lot of the tests that I just reviewed, you know, kind of with you, but they'll do things like, you know, look at your natural killer cell activity and they'll look at something called DQ alpha matching and potentially they'll recommend things like steroids or Lovenox, IVIG or intralipids. And there are some great reproductive immunologists out there. They're so, I've interviewed a couple of myself for, for my, um, for my podcast and, and they are compassionate, they're understanding you can imagine that the people, the patients that they've helped have been through so much. And obviously the treatments that have helped those people get pregnant and be successful. And I know a lot of people consider this stuff controversial, but I do think that there is a lot that happens at the surface between an embryo and a uterus that's related to immune dysfunction and those things, again, out of our control, but potentially some of these treatments could possibly help. Can you speak a little bit about reproductive immunology? I don't even... What Like, break those basics down for me. I mean, the basics are that you have to have a really nice match between genes in the uterus and genes in the embryo that are responsible for implantation, and they just need to match up. And sometimes they don't. And those genes are also related to abnormal NK activity, and those are cells that are normally in our body. And if there's an imbalance or there's not a good match, those puzzle pieces won't link. And then you'll either have an implantation issue or even worse. I mean, it's all pretty bad when this happens. You can have implantation and the implantation can fail. And the hard part is knowing like exactly how you treat it. Like, do you do intralipids to decrease the NK activity? Do you take a steroid? Do you switch out the egg source or the sperm source or the uterus source because of something? But basically the way the way I think about it, it's just so hard to I've always said I need to write a blog about exactly how you explain to someone what happens at the surface of the uterus between an embryo. But the best way I can think of it is they're just puzzle pieces that just don't fit when there's immune dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing that it's hard because sometimes no matter what you do, you know, you sometimes have to think even, you know, more creatively about how you help somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into more specific scenarios and we're going to we're going to start with a doozy cuz I even had to kind of look this up. Do you know of Dr. Kilman's research on trophoblastic inclusions and are they valid and what the hell is a trophoblastic inclusion? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Dr. Kleiman, I've known him forever. He's a very well-respected professor and, um, you know, has written so much on this topic. And a trophoblastic inclusion is basically an abnormal folding of the trophoblast bilayer. And it basically, when you have that inclusion, it means that something funky is basically happening at the level of the, in the, as the placenta develops. And we think that it it is possibly related to some sort of genetic abnormality. And so he's studied it a lot and his studies, obviously he's going to say that they validate that it's reliable and it suggests that um, potentially the presence of it is representative of some occult genetic abnormality. And again, you know, he's dedicated his life to this and you can imagine that, um, you know, he thinks it's valid and, and I would never say that his studies or his research are not valid at all, but they have, you know, the the presence has also been associated with things like, you know, recurrent pregnancy loss and prematurity. Um, and I've, I've referred patients to him who've had stillbirths and that's, you know, I think people want answers. And so when, when you find an answer, like there's some sort of um, 
issue with the with the calcified inclusions that he sees, I feel like that can give people closure that, you know what, it, there was something wrong with the pregnancy and I couldn't have done something differently. So I, I feel like his research is really, really important. I would say based on my analysis of everything, it seems valid. I have no reason to think that it's not. So it's essentially like the a chromosomal abnormality that develops in the placenta during implantation. Did I get that correct? Kind of. And it's not necessarily chromosomal. Mm. It's some other, the word is a cult. So it's some sort of genetic abnormality and it could be related to all sorts of different genes from either the maternal or paternal side. And we don't have a way of knowing which one it is, but he does a deep dive with people and just kind of really talks to the physician. So he doesn't necessarily talk to patients so he'll do the test, and then um, the physician who ordered it will talk to him about what he found, and then you know, then the physician then talks to the patient about what it might mean. I think where I'm getting confused is when you say a cult, like the Nexium leader comes to my mind, and I'm <laughs> like, oh my god, there's a cult in my uterus. Like, what? Can you yeah. explain that? I mean, I would say when I use the word occult, I really mean um, something that you can't necessarily describe or test for and something that is um, not preventable. I see. Okay. And if it came from, let's say, the dad's side or the mom's side, you get a sense as to which side it came from. And then you talk about things like using a sperm donor or using an egg donor. And sometimes you know, there might be a recurrence risk based on maybe some of the things you learn about the parents. But for the most part, these things do not recur. Can you speak to the antiphospholipid syndrome? Absolutely. So it's basically a blood clotting disorder. And I think people talk a lot about that on blogs. Oh, I think I have a blood clotting disorder. I'm MTHFR positive. I need Lovenox. And that's not what this is at all. I mean, it's basically another immune issue. I call it an autoimmune issue where our body is our basically our immune system attacks our body and by mistake creates antibodies, like little tiny proteins basically that make our blood much more likely to clot. And it's not the kind of clots that come out with your period. So sometimes I say to patients, I'm going to rule out antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And they say, and I say, you know, just to make sure you're not forming blood clots. They're like, oh yeah, every time I have a period, I have these big clots. And I'm not talking about those clots. I'm talking about tiny, tiny little microscopic clots that can basically clog up the, the vessels that, you know, basically connect the placenta to, or, you know, basically connect or feed the pregnancy so that the pregnancy can continue to grow. So that's why blood thinners will thin out the clot and then that will overcome the issue. And then over 70% of the time, someone with this syndrome can have a live birth. And so there've been so many studies done looking at that and the live birth rates, like I said, are over 70% if you're diagnosed with this. So there's definitely hope if you're diagnosed with this. And it's associated with really tragic things like stillbirth, recurrent pregnancy loss, preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction as well. Mm, but it is, there's a solution out there for it. There is, yeah. And we have a standard panel. I mean, some doctors do, like the reproductive immunologists do a much larger panel of antiphospholipids than like the general OBGYN. We basically just check three things, lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipid antibody, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1. And so those are the tests that I do. And then if someone is seeing one of these reproductive immunologists, they might do a much larger panel. But in general, I, I feel that I can catch most 
problems by doing that smaller panel. But I know the reproductive immunologists are very opinionated mm. about doing a much larger panel. Okay. Okay. What is the correlation between endometriosis and RPL? Well, I mean, endometriosis can affect egg quality. It can cause eggs to be, let's say, even less mature than you would expect. And so if you have lower egg quality, guess what? You have a higher rate of having a genetic abnormality in your embryo. And so that's how it's connected. The other thing endometriosis does is cause a state of inflammation or an inflammatory state in your body. And that makes it harder for an embryo to implant. And then the worst thing is when it's connected to adenomyosis, which is, I describe it as endometriosis in the walls of your uterus. So it makes implantation um, a lot harder um, to happen. So that's kind of how it's all connected to um, recurrent pregnancy loss. Very specific question here. Um, I have had two miscarriages with tested frozen embryos, one at six weeks and another at nine weeks. Should I try a fresh transfer? I mean, it's the the reasoning behind your your I, I get it. Like you tested embryos and you still miscarried. And so I can see how you're like, heck with the testing. I'm just gonna transfer fresh. So the thing is, have you done all the tests that I kind of talked you through? So I have a website, it's angelmethod.com, and those are all the tests listed there, the autoimmune stuff, adenomyosis, Asherman syndrome, looking at nutrition, looking at all the genetic stuff, looking at your endocrine labs and looking at your lifestyle, like so important to do all that stuff. And if you've done all that stuff, including, for example, the receptiva DX test and endometritis testing and everything comes back totally negative, you know, you could certainly still transfer fresh, but before you do, make sure you've banked enough embryos for yourself. So one strategy that I use in a case like that is I transfer one fresh and I freeze and test the rest mm. so that you don't forget, oh my gosh, remember, I'm seeing this fertility doctor now, but I need to go back maybe in two years for my next baby. It would be really nice to know what I have waiting for me. So you can absolutely still transfer fresh, but make sure you've done all the stuff, all the work up before you've got, you've gone there. Mm. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, now we're going to get back to male factor stuff. How often is RPL due to male factors like DNA fragmentation? I mean, I think it's a, we're going to see it a lot more because as men age, especially if their age is over 50, the likelihood of having an embryo with abnormal chromosomes goes up a lot. So anytime I have a woman who's like 43, she's like, I really want to have a baby. I'm ready. I'm ready to do IVF. And her partner's 50. I'm like, well, I'm going to tell you if this doesn't work, the first thing we're going to do is say, use an egg donor. But I can tell you if an embryo is abnormal, it could still, it could be your older husband's sperm. So maybe consider a sperm donor first and do sperm donor IUIs with your eggs. Because women often give up their own DNA to on, you know, so their husband's DNA can be used. And I get that. But I do think that sperm plays a, obviously it's every embryo is half egg and half sperm. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that. It's, it's not common as a thing that um, we attribute it to, but I do think, and there are studies to also, um, go along with what I think that sperm DNA fragmentation and if it's elevated can contribute to recurrent pregnancy loss and it, the rates are not very high, but it's high enough that if I have a couple that has RPL, um, I will do a sperm DNA fragmentation test. And there are other tests out there as well that you can do. There's a test called the, the PATH fertility test and it's a sperm quality test. They look at D, um, 
uh, special markers in the DNA of sperm, they tell you if the sperm DNA age is the same as your chronological age. And so if you'll say you're a 40-year-old man and your sperm DNA age is 55, then you can say, wow, that means that you will have the issues that a 55-year-old sperm provider will have, increased increased risk of RPL, decreased implantation rate, poor blast formation rate. If let's say you're 40 and your sperm age is 25, you can imagine that you're not going to have those issues. So um, I think sperm testing is really important when you have RPL. And that was a, is that something you can just order online? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of these tests will be direct to consumer very soon. The sperm DNA fragmentation test is, and if you go to pathfertility.com, I imagine if, if your doctor will not order it for you, they probably have one of those systems where another doctor will, that's part of their, um, you know, panel of doctors. And can you tell me a little bit, what does the sperm, why is sperm DNA fragmentation so important? Because if it, it's tricky because you can have this gorgeous embryo that's chromosomally normal. And if it came from a sperm that had 90% fragmentation, it may not implant and it could miscarry as well. Mm. And so the, the cool thing is if you know upfront that you have that with technology, you can actually solve the problem. So there's a, a micro sorting chip it's, a, it's basically a, um, a chip that sorts sperm. It's called Zymot, Z-Y-M-O-T. And I've done testing on sperm now pre-Zymot, before it went into the chip, ran a DNA fragmentation test. And I had a, um, I've had situations where the DNA fragmentation was over 90%. Mm. And I do DNA fragmentation on the sperm when it comes out of the chip and it's like 10%. So the thing is that not everyone has access to that tool. And so if you don't have access to that tool, perhaps doing the DNA fragmentation test ahead of your cycle makes sense. But for me, since I use that tool now on every single cycle, when I'm doing IVF and every single IUI, I don't necessarily use that test unless it's to help someone figure out if they should be doing more IUI or go to IVF um, or just going right to IVF, just depending on the situation. But that's, that's why I think it's really important to me because having highly fragmented sperm go into an egg could cause all sorts of problems. The problems that, you know, drive us crazy where, you know, you have highly fragmented sperm used in an embryo. You have stories of patients go through three, four, five embryos, doesn't work, then go into a surrogate and it still doesn't work and the surrogate miscarries. And then someone says, oh, wait, we should have checked the sperm DNA. And then you find out it's like 75%. And then you use a sperm donor in the first embryo you transfer and it worked. And that was pre-Zymot. And I'm sharing you know, experiences that I've had before. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I feel like checking, checking the male sperm is always, it's always just been an afterthought in a way. Always, always. And people get sugar-coated sperm results every single day. It's like, oh, it's low, but it's okay. It's probably your fault anyways, because you're 40. And I'm like, no. Yeah. That's not fair. Is hyperfertility a real thing? And if so, how can you, what can you do to counteract that? Well, there's stuff called condoms. <laughs> and, um, there's stuff called a chastity belt and sleeping in separate rooms. I mean, yeah, it's a thing, but like, do I feel sorry for anyone who has that? No, just stop having sex. It's really that simple. <laughs> 
I mean, for people who don't know what that is, it just means like every time you have sex, you get pregnant when it's around ovulation. And Like, come on. Like, I don't feel sorry for them. And it's really like it does exist. Those people do exist. I mean, they probably, they, yeah. I mean, there are people out there that are that fertile. Um, but, you know, you hear these stories where, where people say like, I got pregnant so easily. I got pregnant, had my first baby, got pregnant, had my second baby. And then I'm like, but you didn't want a third and a fourth. And it's like, who knows what have ha- would have happened after that. And then they, they're the ones that are very vocal because they're fertility braggers. Mm. And they just like to share those stories, which is annoying, again, for me too, to hear. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who is now pregnant but has had lost in the past how do you get joy back and not slip into doubt? Yeah. I mean, first of all, read books. So Ali Dormar, Domar has published a fantastic book. I think the title is Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom. And it's all about how to cope with your anxiety and stress when you're pregnant. And also the other thing to find joy is just like find joy in knowing that your pregnancy is going really well and healthy. So for me, it's tracking and trending HCG and progesterone levels for my patients, doing an ultrasound once a week. Because honestly, if I was pregnant right now and I was worried about a miscarriage, I'd scan myself three day, three times a day. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would. Yeah. I would. I mean, yeah. maybe not three times every day, but like maybe once a day, once every three days. And I know that I can do that because I have four ultrasound machines in my office. I can just walk up to a machine and put a probe on my belly and see what's going on. And so I know that patients would want some sort of reassurance until they can feel the baby kick. And until then, you know, ask your doctor, how are you going to provide TLC for me so that I can find joy and not be so paralyzed by panic and anxiety? And I think checking an ECG level, so easy. Going in for a heartbeat check at five and a half weeks even, then six and a half weeks and seven and a half weeks, and then get yourself one week past your latest loss. And then once you're there, see your OB. And then hopefully everything will go really well. And then again, just see what you need to do to decrease your anxiety around what's going on with your pregnancy. And for some people, it's buying a Doppler. I actually do encourage that for some people. I invite people to my office and I teach them how to use it. Or I I actually just watch them on FaceTime using it now. And I just watch them do it at home. Um, Alternatively, you can buy, I, I imagine at some point you can't, I'd have to buy it for a patient, but you can actually buy these handheld ultrasound probes. Um, where you can do an abdominal ultrasound. And I know some people be like, oh, patients can't do that on themselves. And I'm like, people use things like vibrators all the time yeah. on them. Um, I don't see why, you know, something like that would be that scary, but uh, it's not at that accessible for everybody just because it's so expensive. And I think it would be a great way to incorporate um, uh, remote monitoring for patients who are pregnant as well if they don't have access to OBGYNs often. So um, if I were in charge of the world, that's one of the things that I would make accessible to people, like renting out your p- ultrasound probe from CVS. Yes. Yes. Well, you, you're you on your way to running the world, Dr. Amy, and I'm, I'm in full support of that. I do want to circle back, though, to your tushy method that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode for somebody to kind of, you know, look and do some screening to find some answers for their RPL. Can you review your tushy method theory? Absolutely. So tubes, I mean, a lot of recurrent pregnancy loss, sometimes it's even recurrent ectopics. So you can have a blocked fallopian tube. So checking your fallopian tube with a procedure like an HSG, hysterosalpingogram, is a really great idea. And then at the same time, you'll look at your cavity to see if there's any scar tissue or a septum. 
looking at the uterus to make sure there isn't a big fibroid just sitting right in the middle. One of my best friends from childhood, and she tells this story publicly. She had a miscarriage, and I brought her in, and I was like, honey, you got this big fibroid sitting right in the middle of your cavity. Of course, no pregnancy is going to survive that. So she had it removed. So my thing is, why aren't we doing those tests first before someone even gets pregnant? This should be part of routine healthcare. You're ready to have a baby. You go in, you get your tissue checked so that you make sure you've done everything possible to prevent a miscarriage. The other thing we do is look at sperm. You know, if the sperm is low, then you go to my balls method, ballsmethod.com, and you look at the sperm DNA fragmentation up front, do chromosome testing on the sperm or on the, you know, sperm provider if you're in a heterosexual relationship. And then obviously the H is all the hormones, the AMH, the TSH, the FSH, the estradiol, the vitamin D, prolactin, all those things. And if those are abnormal, those can also potentially cause miscarriage or RPL. And then the Y is your genetics, your carrier screen, your chromosome analysis. And now I'm throwing in, in 2022, I'm throwing in your microbiome, your vaginal health. So getting your vaginal health looked at, making sure there isn't an infection, like an overgrowth of Gardnerella or you know something like that. Oh my gosh, vaginal health. I know. Wow. Right? It's important. Yep. It is. I mean, I had a patient recently, she had two transfers and I'm like, this makes no sense. I've done everything. I've gone through my egg whisper diet, my tushy method, my angel method. What else? I don't have another method. Mm -hmm. And then the Emma and the Alice test came out and I did that biopsy. She had already done the ERA test and it came out. I was like, God, maybe that's, the thing. And I did it. And there were two bacteria that she was positive for. I treated it. The next transfer worked. I mean, it could have just been a fluke, right? It could have just been that from an immune standpoint, that embryo had the right genes to fit right into her uterus because of the genes in the uterus. You know, it's like that could have been why. But at the end of the day, I had that experience. And anecdotally, I've had others too, where I'm like, wow, this could be really something that can help people a lot. Speaking about vaginal health, I think that it's really important that um, to get your input on douching. Everybody seems to be obsessed with douching, and it just doesn't feel like it's that great. Yeah, I mean, your vagina is a self, what is it, a self-cleaning oven. It doesn't need a douche. <laughs> it really is. It is. And if you want to do something like that, use it on the outside. Like get a peri bottle and just mix up some like mild soap with water and just kind of spray yourself every time you pee to minimize urine infections. Um, But you don't need to be putting anything up there. Don't vaginal steam. Don't douche. Oh yeah. So the Emma and Alice tests, they, they test for vaginal microbiome and bryo. Yeah, they look at like levels of uh, lactobacillus to see if you need a targeted type of probiotic. They also look at a whole bunch of different bacteria, like, you know, even E. coli, you know, stuff that you're like, how did that get up there? But who cares? We're going to treat it now. Can you talk a little bit about thyroid issues with RPL? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have access to so many types of tests and, um, we want, I think what the message about that is that if your TSH is like 2.9 and you've gone online and you read that you have to have a TSH of 2.5 or less, otherwise you won't get pregnant. That's not true. Um, having a TSH of 2.9 or 3.2 is not going to cause RPL. Having a TSH of 100, having a TS and having a TSH of and, and antithyroid antibodies. And if you have currently like Hashimoto's thyroiditis that's untreated, that can cause RPL. So, you know, 
that, that's a really easy thing to treat. And that's actually what my mom had. I think her, I have to go back and ask her. And that's why I went into fertility medicine. She had so many miscarriages and my dad's a doctor and I got so mad at him. It's like, how did you not like figure this out for her? And uh, so I'm very sensitive to, you know, thyroid issues and how they can cause, if untreated, recurrent pregnancy loss. So very easy test to do. Yeah, you can, I remember you telling me to get a full thyroid panel um, through my gyno, which was very simple. Yeah. I was honestly very shocked that Kaiser said yes. Well, they must like you, Millie. I mean, they must know <laughs> I, I, have anyone, a, I have a podcast or something. I don't how know. can anyone say no to you? Oh, well, it's happened before. Um, and I remember it. Um, <laughs> well, anyways, anything else you really want to drive home today on the RPL subject and the heartache of miscarriage? Yeah. I mean, there's so many resources out there. Get help. Um one miscarriage could be enough for you to go get worked up. Um, and then also remember that you have a really good chance of having a healthy baby after a miscarriage. It does not mean you're not going to have a healthy baby, but use the pregnancy as a way to guide you as to what you should do next. And the, probably the most important thing I want everyone to remember is please get your miscarriage genetically tested. Please, 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 please don't let anyone tell you, oh, it's probably just abnormal because that pregnancy, it's there. It's there for you to test and testing it. If it came back abnormal, then you don't have to go through all the workup of what else it could be. And if it's normal, then, oh my gosh, you have to go through all the workup of what it could be. And so, you know, and that's the other thing, even if it comes back with normal chromosomes, there could be so many other things that could have been wrong with the pregnancy. Like there could have been some sort of birth defect that you just can't see because it's too early. Like the genes related to how the heart was forming could have just been abnormal. And we have no way of knowing that. So just know it's not your fault. Go get some um, tests done and then talk to a fertility doctor and that really cares. And that's what we're all here to do is, you know, care for people who have RPL. Thank you so much, Dr. Amy. This has just been so informative, really helpful. Love you, Millie. Thank you for having me on. I can't wait to come on again. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week.